Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host for this podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to my friend and colleague, Thomas Kohut, about his book, A German Generation, An Experiential History of the 20th Century. Tom, welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for talking to me. Sure. Tom is, uh, let me just introduce you. Uh, Tom is the Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III Professor of History at Williams College. He received his BA from Oberlin and his PhD from the University of Minnesota. He is also a graduate of the Cincinnati Psychoanalytic Institute. He's a member of the Board of Trustees of the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and is chair of the Council of Scholars of the Eric Erickson Institute at Austin Riggs. Now, Tom's uh, first book, is the often uh, cited exemplary psychohistory, Wilhelm II and the Germans, A Study in Leadership. It was published by Oxford University Press in 1991. And his recent book, uh, which we'll be talking about today, is another fine psychohistory, um, although I don't, I don't know if he wants to claim that characterization, but we can, we can discuss that. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's, this book is even more courageous than the first. Uh, the main source base of the book consists of about 60, a little more than 60 interviews of Germans who had been part of the youth movement during the Weimar Republic. And uh, these interviews were conducted in the 1990s, and most interviewees were in their uh, in their early 20s, right, when Hitler uh, came to power and during World War II. So Tom noticed that there was uh, much narrative coherence across these interviews and decided to create six composite interviews. Um, Now, the composite case is something that might be familiar uh, in psychoanalytic writing, but in the world of historians... It's, it's unusual and arouses much skepticism. Um, and I, I'm a historian and I was a bit surprised that I did not find them uh, more problematic, actually. They were, they were brilliantly executed, I think. So but we'll, we'll hear much more about this shortly. Uh, okay, so Tom, can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and your reasons for writing the book? Okay, well, um, I guess, you know, everything that I do, whether I'm uh, teaching a history class at Williams or whether I'm writing scholarship, what I'm really interested in is human experience. I'm interested not in what happened, uh, not in coming to some kind of objective understanding, uh, empirical understanding of what happened, but I'm interested in how human beings, beings experienced themselves, the world in which they lived, why they thought uh, things happened. Mm-hmm. And so this book is very much in keeping with all the work that I do as a historian, and I think it's actually very much in keeping um, with the way um, my kind of psychoanalyst uh, listens to his or her patients. Uh, I'm very interested, mm-hmm. again, in, in how, how, how people experience themselves in their world. Um, and this, you know, I, I, I actually worked briefly after I graduated from the Institute in Cincinnati or even maybe during it, during my um, analytic training uh, as a research, uh, I guess, candidate it was called. Uh, I worked as a therapist, and hmm. I don't see in some ways a huge uh, epistemological difference uh, between the way historians understand human beings and the way psychoanalysts understand human beings. I think in both instances, one tries to think oneself inside the experience of the other person uh, to understand their past and their present circumstances and to try to understand from their point of view 
uh, why they do what they do and uh, why they feel what they feel and why they think what they think. And I guess for me, um, as a historian, I'm particularly interested in the maybe less in what they do and more in what they feel and what they think. And so that there's a kind of a, um, I don't know, consistency of approach that connects this particular book with everything else that I do professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think it comes, it goes back, um, profoundly to my family. I'm the son of the psychoanalyst Heinz Kohut, and my mom, uh, uh, also had psychoanalytic education actually in Vienna in the 1930s and huh. was a psychiatric social worker. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a family where this was the way we lo- we looked at the world, and it's kind of in my D- it's in my DNA, but it's also in my uh, the culture of the family, and it's it's how I interact with people generally. It kind of uh, I guess to use the, the kind of the word associated often with my dad, and often I hope also with me, uh, to, I try to take an uh, empathic approach to people and an empathic approach to history, and so that's very very much. Uh, me and very much connected with everything I do. The book, the book uh, reflects that outlook. What's different um, about this project, different from any other project that I've ever done, is that the project picked picked me, and I didn't pick the project. Uh, I was offered um, uh, money, and I got a nice stipend to join a large research project uh, at the University of Siegen in Germany. Um, in, in, in Germany in particular in history, it's somewhat different from in the United States. Uh, history in Germany is very much a social science and there are often very large group projects involving lots of different people. And this was one of those group projects. It was, uh, a study of, um, members of a, uh, an organization called the Free German Circle, uh, mm-hmm. which was an organization that had been founded after World War II. It was kind of a self-help organization for refugees at that point, and everybody who belonged to this organization had, as Anna mentioned earlier, been members of the youth movement in the 1920s. And they found one another after the war. They came together after the war. They they provided each other with um, physical support, uh, but I think especially emotional support. And this bond, this adolescent uh, bond of the youth movement, sustained them uh, throughout the course of their lives. And this organization, the Free German Circle, remained in effect until it was deliberately uh, dissolved in the year 2000 in a kind of slightly grandiose, uh, but also slightly fitting uh, end. They actually they drew down the curtain on themselves. And during the period from the late 1940s until the year 2000, uh, this organization flourished. Uh, it had, I don't know how many members, but over 2,000 members. I think it's well over that. I don't remember. I'm not very good at remembering numbers. Uh, they met, they had annual conventions. They had local mm-hmm. chapters. They had a newsletter. Um, it was in many ways the centerpiece of these people's lives. And uh, this project was funded, oddly, by the German government because it was thought that this this group of of at that point, elderly people uh, could perhaps serve as a model for how uh, Germany might deal with an aging population because these elderly people were enormously active. Uh, they weren't sitting alone at home. They weren't shut away in nursing homes or in assisted care living facilities. They were uh, incredibly engaged 
with one another. They were engaged uh, with the world around them, um, and they they weren't. Uh, they were. They seemed to provide a kind of ideal model of how one might, um, how one should live one's life at, as one as the end of one's life approached. And and I think the idea was to think of maybe using generational systems as a way of. Uh, or generational networks as a way of supporting old people. So that was kind of why the federal government funded this project, and there were a whole bunch of people involved with it. And I'll just sort of, because I'm going on a bit long about this, but the um, okay. the uh, the my role in this was to analyze 62 interviews that had been conducted uh, by researchers on this project with 62 members of the Free German Circle. Uh, their average age at the time of the interview was 81 years old, and they spoke for hours. And the interview transcripts were enormously long, or are enormously long, and my job was to provide a kind of psychoanalytic, uh, historical analysis of those interviews, which I did. And then I was going to write a book with, along with a colleague named Jürgen Roilicke together, in which we were going to write a kind of generational uh, biography, if you will, of these 62 people or of this and and of other members of this organization. Um, and uh, he turned out not to be able to do this, uh, I think, because um, he in many ways idealized these people. These were, I think, for him in many ways, the parents or the father in particular that he had not had because his father uh, died in the First World War or Second World War. Um, and for me, I had a very different reaction to them, uh, a much more critical reaction, because they were also the age of my parents, right. uh, but whereas my parents uh, were, my mom was not uh, German, obviously, but my dad was Austrian, had been in the youth movement, believe it or not, uh, sort of the Austrian version of the Boy Scouts, but because of, he was racially Jewish, according to the Nazi criteria, he had to flee Austria, and he could never have been a member of this Free German Circle or a member of the, uh, you know, at the end, at the end of the, during the 30s in Germany, he would never have been a member of the youth movement because it was really quite anti-Semitic in many ways. And all of these, or virtually all of the people that were interviewed, whose interviews I read, virtually all of them were very enthusiastic Nazis, and it would have been... So I had a much more critical uh, attitude toward them, and I think um, that was one of the things, you know, I said I didn't choose this project, that made this uh, tough for me um, psychologically uh, to deal with, because uh, particularly when I was writing that is in many ways the heart of the book, which is about these people during the Third Reich, I was constantly aware of my own potential victimhood vis-a-vis these people. I was, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're a historian, you're you're you you are very much using your imagination. That's one of the reasons history is so great. Um, and I was trying to imagine my way and think my way inside the world of the Third Reich, and that's a very unpleasant place to live in one's imagination. And, and on the other hand, too. Uh, the Third Reich kind of began to inhabit me as well, and I found it quite difficult uh, to write that, to spend, you know, during the months that I worked on the Third Reich, and it was very many months, maybe even a year, uh, I found it a very difficult and oftentimes painful experience. So again, maybe not something I would have chosen willingly, uh, but I'm really glad I did. I think I've managed to work through some issues connected with um, the role of 
the Holocaust in my own family, in part because I worked on this period so intensively. Um, but I am aware that uh, Anna mentioned earlier that I, I did these composite interviews, and I'm very well aware of the fact that I felt oftentimes um, sort of helpless or had sort of experiences of helplessness when I was, or potential victimhood when I was uh, thinking about uh, the lives of these people during the Third Reich. And it's, it's conceivable that these composite interviews that I created, uh, in which I very much created, I mean, I kind of mastered the past and shaped it to be what I wanted it to be. Uh, and perhaps also my argument about these people reflects uh, an effort on my part to kind of contradict or go against the feelings of helplessness that I experienced by sort of exerting domination over these people. <laughs> anyway, so that, that's, that's how I got to it. That's what's like what I've done in the past. And that's also how it's different because it's, it's, it was a world that I ended up inhabiting uh, intellectually and also emotionally that was not always easy to inhabit. It's really interesting. So you, you see the, the effort, the, the, the making of the composites as an effort on your part to master, to gain control over these people. I, I was going to ask you about the composites and do you think well, what went into making them? Because they read, they were very smooth. And in the in the uh, introduction, you said that um, that there was so much repetition, right, in the interviews that you just thought it would be more interesting to combine them. Can you can you just talk about the experience of creating the composite? Well, um, I mean, I remember when I thought of doing it for the first time uh, and thinking. There were, I remember exactly what it was about. There were two women, and I, I, I say all this in the book. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've taken is rather, the book has a very unusual structure for a history book, not, you know, the composite interviews most of all, but I also have these essays that are in there. Right. I can talk about those later, why they're there. Um, but, um, but I, you know, I, I remember coming to the idea of doing the composite when I was thinking about two women who had written virtually indistinguishable descriptions wow. of living in an apartment from an expropriated yeah. Jew. And I thought, you know, these people are saying exactly the same thing. And then I began to look, and I realized that um, I, I was uh, that this was not unusual, that in fact they were often um, describing the same experiences and the same events in virtually the same language. And... Uh, I thought hmm, maybe I could somehow put these together. Uh, when when you're doing um, oral history, obviously, I mean, it's like any kind of an interview, which would even be true of a therapy situation. Uh, the the the, the uh, structure of the interview, um, the focus of the interview, helps shape obviously what people say. And all of these people that were interviewed all had the exact same interview situation. They were all uh, expecting to talk about their experiences in the youth movement. They were all expecting to talk about their experiences in this free German circle. So there was a kind of similarity there. I see. Um, the other thing is these people, many of them, have known each other since they were adolescents. And as a result, they've been talking to one another about their past. I obviously, even though their organization is forward-looking in many ways, obviously the past is what connects them. And I think they've probably been telling these stories and retelling these stories to one another in such a way that a kind of common story has begun to evolve or began to evolve over the years. 
And then I think, but you know, this is probably the most fundamental to me, is not so much how the present helps produce the stories uh, of the past and makes the stories similar, but I think uh, what is really decisive is that they actually had very similar pasts and lived very similar lives, and that those pasts and those lives helped create memories that are also very similar. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not somebody who believes that memory is simply a product of, uh, of the present and that what we remember is a kind of creation of the present. I, I believe, actually, that human beings are historical and that we are very much uh, the product of the past and uh, that it is the past that shapes us more than... that the past shapes our present more than the present <laughs> shapes the past. I think we actually like the idea of being able to think that the present shapes the past because it seems to give us actually more agency mm-hmm. and autonomy, whereas if you think that the past is really very much uh, shaping who we are, what we do, and how we think, we become a little less autonomous, and I think that might be difficult for people to take. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think the, the reasons why these stories were, were very similar... I have to say, and this is something, Anna, you will totally be able to relate to, I found it unbelievably liberating to be able to do these composite interviews <laughs> with. They were a blast. Uh, I could, I had the power. I wasn't constantly scrambling to keep up with history. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I could decide to, you know, kill off one of these people's <laughs> mothers or, or, or fathers, mostly it was fathers. See, that gives out. me a lot of pleasure. It really does. It, Especially it was, it for gave these me people. a lot of pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I have to say, I think this is, you know, I do think my, and again, my own slightly negative or more than slightly negative attitude toward them made it a little easier for me to do that. If I had been in sort of all of these people, I might have found that more difficult. Mm-hmm. But what I tried to do in this book, and I, you know, I've had a lot of reviews now, and I think this was an extremely good thing for me to have done. What I tried to do in this book is be as open and as honest as I can be, or as I could be, about what I'd done. And so there's no, you know, these interviews don't pretend to be anything but what they are. I, you know, in my introduction, I explain in great detail exactly which choices I made and why I made them and where the fiction, you know, what's fictional and how it's fictional. And uh, and I did that also in putting the interviews together when every time I changed a place or a name or a, a date or right. tried to make things, you know, more consistent or I added a phrase to make a transition work. I indicated that. So it is fiction, but it's very opaque or not opaque. It's very... Um, it's very obvious how it's fiction, and I, I think that's mm, why... The opposite of opaque, yeah. Yeah, the opposite of opaque. That's why I've been surprised. I have only had one review that was really quite critical of the... Or not even And not even that critical of the composite interviews. Hmm. Most of the reviewers have sort of ignored it, which, in a way, I was kind of hoping that this would be a big to do, but uh, so far it hasn't been at all, so, yeah. Hmm. So that's the, as I say, it was really fun you know, uh, it, to write them. And it was very, very easy. <laughs> it's as interesting. opposed to the rest of the book, which was very, very hard. Oh, well, let me, let me just say a little bit about the structure. Uh, it grows, uh, the book goes chronologically. It's uh, divided into three periods. Uh, Weimar, the Third Reich, uh, this is rough, right? And the post-war period, is that correct? 
And then um, each period has three sections, interviews where you just, you, you know, produce the composite. And there are two interviews per section, I believe, one man, one woman. Uh, and there's an analysis of the interviews that follows where you analyze them, do close readings. And then this essays uh, section, which follow, which is in every uh, period you have, um, which provides a kind of historical I guess a historical context and also a historiographical context. You you intervene in a number of debates by historians in those essays. Yep. Um, exactly the perfect characterization. Right, and also there's the the essays part also presents other kinds of sources that complement the interviews and and kind of can be read with or against the interviews. Right. Right. Um, so that's the structure. Now, empathy, of course, runs through the whole book. Well, two concepts, really. There are a number of concepts. I won't mention all of them. Uh, the big ones are generation and empathy, even more so. And, and actually, as you were talking about uh, your reactions to these, to these interviewees, I thought, you know, do you think, um, I thought about empathy, and is it important for you, you seem to suggest, or you imply, or maybe you even say it directly, I'm not sure, that it's important for the historian to feel to empathy, um, to experience empathy while, um, while writing or toward his or her subjects or objects of study. And when I was, um, reading the composites, I actually have to admit that I, I mean, maybe I, I don't think I felt empathy in the way that you define empathy because I, I, I can say I felt sympathy like when they would describe, uh, privation or, you know, just very harsh conditions, particularly at the end of the war and or at, right after the war. I felt, I felt sad for them or I felt bad for them and, or when one of their children died or something. But I, I can't say that I, I was, I could put myself in their shoes and nor did I really want to. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that was such a bad thing. So I, so maybe, uh, maybe you can talk about what you mean by empathy and whether you were able to, experience um, that for the interviewees, even as you were not very sympathetic, I guess, or even hated them at points, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, okay, so the uh, at one point, Anna, we could go back maybe to the essays, because I wouldn't mind talking okay. about why they're there. But let me just, at this point, a- answer your question about empathy. I think that where the empathy... Um, is most apparent in the book is in the analytical section. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see empathy as being, you know, yes, in German the word is Einfühlung, which means feeling your way inside someone else's um, experience. And I think feeling may play some role in, in historical understanding, but I think it's actually more thinking one's way inside, and it's kind of somewhat more of an intellectual uh, process. So where I think empathy plays the biggest role is in my efforts to make sense of these people, to understand why they, why they, why they felt what they felt and thought what they thought and did what they did. So I think that is where, you know, that comes in most during the analytical section, where I try uh, to make an argument, really, uh, that, um, this, this generation of Germans, generally, but this, the, this generation of uh, members of the Free German Circle in particular experienced a number of serious losses over the course of their lives, beginning in adolescence, um, and that the, the, the losses that these people experienced, they weren't able to work through or mourn or 
in some ways really process appropriately psychologically. And what they ended up doing was instead of coming to terms with uh, these losses, uh, mourning them, they found sustenance for what they had lost in the group. And mm, that throughout the these people's mm. lives, these people have uh, overcome loss by merging with, uh, becoming part of a group. And this began already in, in adolescence, when at the end of the First World War, uh, the families of these interviewees and the country as a whole suffered a whole series of losses based on the primarily on having lost the war, on the consequences of the war itself, uh, the hyperinflation of 1923, and that all of these um, historically, uh, these historical events, if you will, uh, produced losses for Germans, including particularly uh, the parents of this generation of interviewees, and that uh, because the losses were in the family, produced by history, um, the family could not provide the support for these young people that the family normally would have provided. And this included not just the family itself, the nuclear family, but also the kind of institutions that um, were associated with the older generations, like the schools or the churches, because uh, the teachers were also adversely affected by history and were not as you know, were suffering from really low, low self-esteem, from depression, oftentimes from ill health as, as a result of the war. Um, the parents of these uh, of this generation of Germans that I studied uh, um, really uh, suffered greatly as a result of the events at the end of the war, and uh, were weakened. And in the case of the people that I whose interviews I read, uh, an astonishing forty percent of those people lost. A parent, most often the father, at the end of the at, during the 1920s, and so in the faces of these losses, this generation of Germans turned to the group to find the support that they had hoped to find in the family, or that one might have expected to find in the family, and or in the particularly in the father in some instances, and so they found this in the group, and then this this pattern continued, and in the Third Reich, uh, the youth movement group was replaced by the uh, what was called the, the Volksgemeinschaft, the community of the people, um, which to my mind is the sort of central ideological tenet of national socialism, um, connected very much with anti-Semitism and racism, mm-hmm. and that, this, that they flourished in the Third Reich because it was such a collectivist society. Not only was the whole um, nation understood as a racial collective, but they were loads and loads of groups uh, for people the age of these interviewees to join uh, where they had the intense kinds of group experiences that they'd had in the youth movement. This got even more pronounced during the war. For the men, it was the army. Uh, but for the women, because the men were at the front, virtually all the women interviewees, and there were many of them, there were more women than men, mainly because they lived longer than the men, uh, found intense fulfillment in group activities during the during the Third Reich in the war, in something called the Reich Work Service, or in the military auxiliary, mm-hmm. and, and other uh, Nazi organizations uh, during the war that made them feel uh, intensely alive, intensely supported, and that's why when 
asked about what was the happiest time of their life, women in particular immediately say it was the Third Reich. So then the war ended, the uh, uh, Nazi Germany collapsed, uh, losses on really an unimaginable scale occurred, affecting every one of these interviewees, every member of their generation, and virtually every German. And in the case of these interviewees, at least, uh, they found sustenance after the war by once again finding a group, namely, in this case, this free German circle. And that became the kind of uh, successor to the groups of the Third Reich that had sustained them uh, and the successor to the youth movement that had sustained them, all, I would say, in the face of loss. So where is empathy in that? It's, a, it's, it's trying to understand why they found why the group was so important for these people, and I think, thinking my way inside their experience, the interpretation emerged that the group became a way to compensate for uh, loss that these people had experienced. Loss was produced not kind of in- individually, but collectively by the forces of history. Do you think that the group inhibited their ability to feel empathy for Jews? Because one of the central theses of the book is which I think we haven't gotten to yet, but um, anyway, is that they uh, that the Holocaust basically happened, or they uh, these Germans that these interviewees and their generation uh, looked away from the genocide because they couldn't empathize with with Jewish people. That's right. Yeah, and I, I'm well, just I think, yeah, sorry. I'm just wondering about the relationship between this this inability to do that and their attachment to the group. I mean, there's almost I don't want to say this because I want to believe also in a kind of collective or collectivism as a kind of way of life, but it almost, the way that it's presented in the book, it feels almost pathological, like their attachment to the group kind of, um, yeah, it dismantled their empathic, uh, capacity for empathy. Right. Well, and I think it's not just that it dismantled it, but that given the nature of that group mm. um, and the importance of belonging to that group, uh, it was necessary to have uh, people who couldn't belong to that group. Right. Um, I, you know, maybe it's true of every group. I, I, I'm not sure about this, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that every single intensely experienced group uh, requires uh, people who cannot belong to it, hmm. uh, whether that's uh, like in your world, um, you know, the members of the proletariat requires, you know, the, the dangerous bourgeoisie. Or the um, lumpen proletariat. <laughs> or the lumpen proletariat. In other words, if, in order for the group to be exclusive, and particularly in the youth movement was a highly elitist group, um, the Third Reich, although populist, uh, was very clearly a racially elitist group. So it was extremely important uh, to have people who needed to be excluded from the group. And I think um, the way one excludes people, uh, and particularly if they're going to be excluded physically and ultimately destroyed, is uh, to to cease to experience them as fellow human beings in whose place one could imagine oneself being. They have to be other. And I think Mm -hmm. that uh, it was very important for them to belong to this collective of the Volksgemeinschaft that they uh, not see Jews as human beings like themselves, and that the act of looking away, which is what all of them do, and this is not unique to my group of three Germans, um, this is a very common uh, response from 
all oral histories on this period, uh, and also contemporary accounts and diaries and letters and so forth, is that by looking away, you, you, you close off the possibility of empathy. You literally don't see them. So on the one hand, you close off the possibility of empathy, but you, you also kind of eradicate uh, that that person from consciousness um, and from from being in a way in a way, and there is, I think, some um, connection, uh, albeit you know very different, but still there's a there's some link uh, to the genocide in this looking away and in this closing off of empathy and in in this eradication of other people, um, in order for one to belong to this exclusive uh, group. So. Yeah. I think that in a way, um, the need to belong, the need to feel a part of something powerful and important that enhances the self, that sustains the self, um, that empowers the self, that gives people a sense of belonging and security to profound experiences that they had lost at the end of the First World War, that those, that that, those needs were met in the group, uh, but that the that what enabled the Holocaust to occur, particularly on the part of what we now call bystanders, but I would suspect it's true because I haven't studied the perpetrators exactly, uh, my guess is that all of them, uh, in order to maintain the group cohesion and exclude those who were threats to the group, closed off empathy uh, from um, the people that they uh, wanted to eradicate, and that's how they were able to kill them. One of the things that struck me was that uh, they, it seems like they didn't even do something, you know, sort of short of empathy, like being able to put one themselves into the position of the Jews um, or think their way into it. They and they also weren't even able to kind of tolerate otherness or 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 uh, maybe have respect for the otherness of the other. You know, they just they just were very. Uh, they couldn't really assimilate that these people were different from them, and that was going to be okay. You know, like human but different. Right. That was not. Yeah. That that the human but different doesn't seem to have been really much of an option for them. And of course, you know, this is one instance where we live in a very different world now than they lived in back then. You know, we live in a multicultural society, and we live in a in a culture that, or in a country that, at least in its official um, image of itself celebrates difference and celebrates diversity and yeah. is proud of the melting pot and um, and um, this is these people grew up in a world where everyone looked like them and talked like them and um, and came more or less from the same social class and uh, they weren't accustomed to dealing with difference. And I think they found difference um, very frightening. So, you know, but, but that said, on the other hand, this is a generation that was a kind of a transitional generation. And what they particularly liked, these all the people that I, whose interviews I read were middle-class educated Germans, basically, mm-hmm. uh, or upper-middle-class educated Germans. But what many of them liked was being in these Nazi organizations like the Arbeitsdienst or the Reichswerk Service or the Wehrmacht, Particularly the women, actually, not so much the men in the Wehrmacht, but the, the women actually enjoyed getting to know and working together with women who were of lower social classes because previously they had virtually nothing to do with that. So, yes, 
right, this generation true. was mm-hmm. extremely homogeneous and was very comfortable in its homogeneity, but uh, at least you get the beginning of the kind of social opening that now, you know, characterizes uh, Western Europe. Um, you know, yes, there are class distinctions and they're still powerful, but there is, it, it's nothing like it was, um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, the whole, you know, I have to say the Nazis uh, are part of the whole process or need to be understood as part of the process of social opening because they were very much, at least on an ideological level, of breaking down class boundaries and having, making sure that everyone uh, worked together, at least for a time in their lives, with members of the other social classes from other parts of Germany, from where they grew up, uh, and this was accomplished in the Hitler Youth, and it was accomplished in the Reich Work Service, and it was also part of the experience in the German Army. Although, I have to say there, I think the men that I dealt with uh, were more threatened by the social opening, these sort of he-manly <laughs> proletarians, kind of sort of scary to some of them, I think. And also, in the Army, the people that I interviewed, uh, or I didn't interview, but these interviews I read, um, often were officers and therefore kind of uh, stuff removed from the working class people. But that was not true of the women. The women were actually um, uh, working together with, uh, living together with uh, women of all different social classes uh, in their work camps or in in their military auxiliary units or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Well, apropos of... I want to get back to something you said earlier about uh, looking away and just talking about um, the experience. Because a lot the interviews, the interviewees uh, often said things like, "I knew, but I didn't know," and um, they kept. It, it seemed like those phrases were repeated, and that's why you included them in the. Uh, they knew, they, they, but they didn't know about the final solution. Sorry, I should um, be more specific. So I, I think that's why you included those phrases in the composites. And I wanted, I actually wanted to read a quote. It's kind of a long one, but it sent chills down my spine. And I thought I'll I'll read it and maybe you can comment on it and tell us what's, what's going on here. Okay. Okay. They slunk along the street. They looked so frightened. I'd have to say, I thought to myself, that simply can't be. And then once I saw in the Buckstrasse, that people were being transported away. I once saw the Jews with stars, ellipsis, and actually numerous families, Jewish families, lived there. But then I saw, ellipsis, I came, I can still remember exactly, I came from the side and saw the Jews were literally being herded together. I saw it, and I looked away. And I thought about something else. I continued on my way and didn't get upset about it. How can something like that happen? or that one registers what is actually happening. But I know I saw it. I can still see it exactly before my eyes. They wore the star and were literally being herded together in the street. And in retrospect, I consider that to be our guilt, that we didn't concern ourselves about it. I thought about prettier things than about that. Already, after taking three steps, I was thinking about something else. I basically didn't acknowledge it to myself, although I still know it and can still see the picture exactly before me. Back then, I, I won't say I repressed it, I simply didn't consciously acknowledge it, not consciously. Okay, so <laughs> tell, tell us what, what you think is, is going on there, and um, how often you saw this in interviews, some kind of similar uh, well, statement. The, the, I, I'm, 
that from the composite interviews? Yes, or, yes. Okay, so I think that's actually two different people. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think I actually go into this again, although maybe I don't quote it as fully in the analytical section. Uh, the one person um, uh, who's talking here, it's better to kind of disaggregate them maybe a little bit. Sure. Um, the one person who's talking is fairly cold-hearted about it, even now, when she's being interviewed, uh, whereas the other one is very self-aware and feels bad. And... Uh, the one who feels bad is the one who says, um, you know, I looked at it, I saw it, I didn't, it's not that I didn't register, I don't remember exactly what the quotation is, but I thought about prettier things than that. After a few steps, I was thinking about something completely different, um, and um, that's what I consider to be our guilt. And that's mm-hmm. the more, she's the more self-aware, in a way, person, or, um, I mean, yeah. It, it seems to me that those are the you know the only two where something that dramatic is presented. Um, I mean, I think recent research, uh, and it, it's you know, and it's not just my book, but just recent research has made it very very clear that virtually every German actually did know about the Holocaust um, on hmm. some level at least, right? Uh, and um, that in some ways all Germans on one level or another engaged in this very same process of looking away and thinking about prettier things than that. Um, you know, I think, yes, some of it, some of the explanation could be that they were afraid, um, you know, that if they saw this, they'd actually have to take a position on it. And if they took a position on it, that it was, it was good that this was happening um, this might make them feel uneasy because somewhere they may have felt um, that these are human beings too and um, this is not something that should happen to them. Uh, or they would think this is bad, and if they think it's bad, they either they have a choice that they do something about it, but they were probably afraid to do something about it, so they did nothing about it, and then they'd feel guilty. So that's kind of uh, for not doing something. So that's probably the way most people would interpret this, and I think there's a great deal to be said for those interpretations, that interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also more than that. I think there's um, there is a way uh, that this connects with um, what, in many ways, anti-Semitism or racism in general may be, mm-hmm. which is a lack of empathy. I mean, I think it really is on some basic level not wanting to register other people um, as human beings. And I think part of it is, you know, this is closer to the first interpretive constellation that I described, that I think these people wanted to experience good feelings on a most basic level. And they weren't so great at tolerating bad feelings, in part because I think they were quite damaged psychologically as a result of these losses that I discussed earlier. Right. Um, so they can't tolerate bad feelings. And looking at these these, these people being transported away or, or huddling shyly in the street or slinking along or whatever um, wouldn't have made them feel good. So they didn't want to feel bad, so they looked away. Um, so I think there's... There's something, some of that there, but I think that that this looking away is goes to the heart of the Nazi project. Um, the Nazi project is about excluding this group of this, this category of being 
they didn't want to acknowledge them as people, but let's say they are people. Uh, they did not want to acknowledge Jews uh, as part of the human race. Um, they wanted to eradicate them and everything that Jews represented from from the from the human race and from from the world. And uh, that looking away is a form of that eradication. Mm. And um, I think there's a way that uh, when you, you know, when you, um, when you, if you're a German, uh, a non-Jewish German, and this is described numerous things like this, you know, uh, this is during the war when Jews are still allowed to go out during certain restricted hours, and they're all made to wear this rope this star on their uh, coats or whatever, and, you know, it's a very, you know, common description that a, per, uh, a non-Jewish German is walking down the street and coming towards him, let's use him because that's the one I can remember, uh, he sees a, a, a man wearing a Jewish star coming toward him. Um, there are oftentimes the word shyly is used to describe the Jews as if they were, like, shy, but actually they're humiliated, terrified, not wanting to be seen for fear of what will happen to them. And this right. is then interpreted as shyness. Anyway, that that's a very common trope that's used to, I guess that's the right word to describe uh, mm-hmm. the Jews wearing the star. But so this person, the, the non-Jewish German, sees the Jew coming towards him wearing the star, and he crosses the street so as to not have to, so as not to have to pass him. There's no, it's not like a conscious thought, I don't want to see, they just, it, it makes it made it would make me feel uneasy, and that's something that's repeated in oral history after oral history, and in, and in you know contemporary accounts during the Third Reich as well. People didn't want to feel uneasy, and I think that there's something about you know the reason that the Jews had to be excluded from Germany was that the the Jews made Germans feel uneasy. Um, this was an alien presence within the community of the folk. And uh, this getting rid of them would make us feel comfortable again. There's a, there's right. a. This is not in my book, but it's in a book by Peter Fritzsche, uh, who describes um, a school class, um, like elementary school class. And there was a large. It was in Berlin, and there was a large number of Jewish students in this class. And on one of the Jewish high holidays, all the Jews were gone from the class. And the teacher said to the other students, or the pupils, isn't it wonderful, today we're just here among us. <laughs> and I think that there's, uh, there's something about that wow. uh, experience of just being among us um, that, that is connected with this looking away phenomenon. Well, actually related to this, you say in the book that, um, well, two, two points. Um, you say two interesting things. One is that you characterize, I think, I think you're talking about, uh, the quote that I read, but maybe it was a different one. That it was, uh, you characterize the reaction as a vertical split. You know, or, or maybe a disavowal, like a structure of, I know very well, but, or, or even a denial, which is a more primitive, I guess, defense. Um, do you, do you, are you going back? I mean, cause it seems like you're saying something a little bit different now. Um, and then the other, have you changed your mind about it? And I wonder, I wonder what you're, what you think about that now. And you also said that there, in some cases you felt like there was repression, there was a horizontal split involved, but mm-hmm. didn't, you didn't really give, I don't know, I'm not sure that I know what that might look like based on your, the interviews that you presented. Okay, yeah. so I guess, I mean, I think, I think that 
this gets back to the whole issue that is of enormous interest to some scholars about, you know, did the, did the Germans know about the Holocaust? Mm. And to me, this is a kind of very, <laughs> from a psychoanalytic point of view, naive question. Right, um, right. Because it kind of assumes very clearly either one knows or one doesn't know. And I think we all know uh, yes. that people can know things on all kinds of different levels. Right. Uh, and I think the probably, you know, what I would say, the woman that looks at the Jews being deported and then looks away and thinks about something else, that's a kind of a, what I would call simply repression, a repression of the, of the, of the perception. Um, now maybe you could argue that it's even, it's not even as that far yet because it's not even, the, the, the perception she says has not even registered in her consciousness. Mm. Which she never actually ever saw, perhaps. Um, but, but I, I can, I can imagine, I guess what I was trying to characterize by the horizontal split is that you see it and then you look away from it and you suppress what you've seen. Right. But what's so striking in the interviews, um, is the number of times when interviewees say, first, it seems to always be in this direction, you know, we knew nothing about the Holocaust. Uh, and then within a sentence sometimes, sometimes almost in the same sentence, they acknowledge that they did know about the Holocaust. Right. So I think that I'm trying to characterize uh, as a as a vertical split where you both know and don't know right. uh, at the same time. And I, I don't really pretend to understand um, why in interview after interview this occurs. And it's not just in, in the interviews that uh, I look at, but they're in other oral history interviews as well. And it's often, it's quite interesting, it often starts with the statement, I didn't know. And then immediately thereafter, I did know. It doesn't start out with, I did know, but then, and then going to, I didn't mm. know. It's the other, always the other way around. I, I don't, I don't pretend to understand that. I think it would be really interesting to, you know, look at all the instances and all the kinds of interviews that exist, uh, where this phenomenon uh, manifests itself to try to tr- figure out what exactly the process is. I mean, there have been some explanations for it, but I, I find them, not persuasive at all, hmm. um, and particularly for the direction. You know, that it starts out with "I didn't know," but I did. What do you What do you make of that? The direction of it. You think it's obviously I, very significant. Well, it's just noticeable, but I don't. I don't hmm. know. I mean, so I, there's three explanations that I've heard that I can remember right now. One is uh, the least interesting, and that is that when they when when they're asked the question, "Did you know about the Holocaust?" Um, they're thinking about Auschwitz, and they think they didn't know about Auschwitz, uh-huh. so they say no. But then they, they didn't know about, about extermination camps. They knew about they camps. Knew about, they knew about the killing of the Einsatzgruppen, and, or they knew about other things. Um, so that's the least psychologically interesting. Uh, another explanation is that um, by saying they don't know, they're trying to absolve themselves of guilt, and sort of take a moral position, uh, but then when they talk about what they do know, um, there's a, uh, I don't know, there's a kind of a recognition that, that they, they do have some guilt. I, I, I'm, I don't remember. There's a third one that I, that's, I, um, that, um, comes from the work of Gabriel Rosenthal, and I can't remember exactly what it is. I think it's partly that if they acknowledge guilt, if they acknowledged their guilt completely, they'd be overwhelmed by it and would be unable to function. Um, so that they kind of dose their guilt by uh, 
acknowledging only partial knowledge, uh, but that the global, I didn't know, is a kind of way not to be overwhelmed by guilt. Um, in my sense there, if that were the case, the, the, the interviews would have gone in the other direction. You would have started out by saying, I did know, and then the guilt starts to get bigger and bigger, and you're going to get overwhelmed, so then you say, no, but I really didn't know. But instead, it's always the other way around, so that makes me somewhat skeptical about that explanation. But, you know, look, I, I don't pretend to understand this. I, I just I just don't know. You, you say something very, very good about, I, I think, very interesting about uh, perception and knowledge, the difference between the two, mm-hmm. that um, I believe you say that knowledge is more social. Mm-hmm. So they, they perceived, but they couldn't really assimilate um, because something was, because it wouldn't be socially sanctioned. So okay. they, yeah, so that, that contributes. And particularly because, you know, social sanction is so important if you're belonging to this in, intensely experienced group. So, you know, what you know along with everyone else in the group helps make you a group uh, and you are not allowed to know what the group doesn't sanction because that excludes you from the group or separates you from the group. So there's a way that um, group cohesion and knowledge are intimately intertwined for these people. Right. Wow. Okay, so um, I wanted to before we, we conclude, I really wanted to get to the post-war years just to say a few things that really um, uh, struck me, at least. Uh, that women, you've, you've already touched on this, that w- women, when they talk about the, the war, and um, they, they talk about it very differently from the men, because it's, it's amazing to me that the women were, uh, see themselves as having been empowered by the war, even though... At the very end, like many of them were near starvation and they were raped repeatedly by occupying Soviet soldiers. Um, they remain, yeah, they, they have this, they talk about the end of the war. And I think the Third Reich as a whole, right, as something that was very empowering for them. Mm-hmm. And the men are kind of, they're uh, pretty much reluctant to talk about the war and uh, the immediate post-war period. The other uh, interesting part is that they're, they all characterize themselves as being optimistic people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're deeply conservative. They're they're kind of isolated, but they're also they're also very optimistic. And you engage this a bit, and again, you've touched on this already. But um, in re- in relation also to uh, the Mitscherlich famous uh, essay, "Inability to Mourn," published in I think 1967, um, which they uh, Alexander and Margaret uh, Mitscherlich claimed that. Germans couldn't work through the, uh, their many losses, right? And so no, they didn't claim that, but they should have. <laughs> oh, they should have. No, you say that. Sorry, maybe right. you say. They so let me, let me actually. Were, yeah, yeah. Go they, ahead. They, they claimed that the Germans were unable to mourn. That's right. That's uh, right. Because to do so would have confronted them with guilt that they couldn't face. Right, and you and you claim <laughs> the um, you invert this and you say that. That's exactly right. Right, right. The inability of the Germans to mourn. Um, their losses prevented them. them right, sorry, go ahead. Feeling guilt. Right, which I so, think so is totally right. Losses <laughs> is more important for this group than guilt. Later, uh, in the 60s, when the Mitchellists were writing, guilt in Germany became uh, experience, experienceable, if you can use that word. Mm. And uh, But in the 50s, when people were recovering from the kind of devastating losses they'd experienced, uh, they had no capacity. They had not had much capacity to empathize with other people anyway, 
and they had even less capacity uh, when they were trying to deny the losses that they had experienced. And I, I, I really, one cannot underestimate the kind of catastrophic losses that Germans experienced at the end of World War II. You know, I thought about the Torok and Abraham essays on incorporation and mourning, you know, when the sudden loss of an object, um, when there's a sudden loss and there's shame surrounding that object and uh, introjection is prevented, but you get instead incorporation, a kind of swallowing whole of the an encryption of the object. So people who have done this kind of walk around without feeling guilt, without any melancholia, um, because as far as they're concerned, they haven't lost anything. They've just incorporated it and hidden it well, with, you know, deep within somewhere. And that they remain optimistic as long as those walls that, you know, of the crypt are not shaken, presumably by like analysis or something. Because I, I, I felt like these were, these people, they, I was expecting them to talk more about actually the, um, like nightmares or panic attacks or, or some kind of negative, you know, traumatic, uh, symptoms of trauma. And they, they, they seem to avoid, they seem to not talk about that at all. Even though they yeah. had, they clearly had psychoanalytic language available to them, like that woman who said, it wasn't repression. I wouldn't say I repressed it. Like, this is interesting, right, that she's using this. Well, one of the things that's very, partly because of this article by the Metrolinks that you mentioned, mm-hmm. Germany in general is a much more psychoanalytically sympathetic society than the United States is. And uh, the whole notion that um, people need to work through loss and come to terms with the past. Uh, the, the famous Vergangenheitsbewältigung is on some level a deeply psychoanalytic concept in the way that it's understood hmm. by Germans. And it is a complete part of uh, discourse in Germany and not just among the educated upper middle classes. So um, it's just sort of the way the world is. And, and I think so that this kind of language is available to Germans, and they use it, um, in, particularly in dealing with Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. My interpretation um, of the optimism, um, I yes. think yours is, a, is a, you know, again, it's just a different theoretical language, but I think the way you present it is really interesting and compelling, and I hadn't, I hadn't you know, thought of it that way. I saw it basically as a defense um, that, uh, that they right. were... These people were very brittle and very fragile and very, very, very well defended. And that the idea that they can, you know, they couldn't, you know, just like you can't tolerate Jews in the perfect Aryan homogeneous society, you can't interpret bad things or bad feelings. Everything has to be turned into something optimistic and wonderful. And they try really hard to make loss into something positive. Um, and they try you know, the you know we didn't talk about this, but these these interviewees had terrible terrible troubles with their own children. The famous 1968 mm. uh who seemed to be quite disturbed from from their descriptions of their children. They seem in many instances to be almost completely alienated from their children. That seems to be the one loss in these people's lives that they can't sort of make into something positive. Um, so I, I understood these people as being quite damaged um, by these losses, that the group was a kind of, I don't know what the right word, a compensatory structure, but didn't actually I see. Uh, get as internalized as maybe, um, you know, they relied on the group to, to provide psychological functions that they didn't have within themselves and that you would want 
normally people to be able to have within themselves, like a sense of self-esteem, a sense of security, a sense of self-confidence. Um, all of that was kind of shared with others because they didn't have the wherewithal within themselves to kind of regulate their own affect. So um, I, under- I understood um, I understood them as quite fragile and brittle. And you know what is interesting is they were asked generally in these interviews they were just uh, they were just told talk you know just speak about your life story and um, off they go and they talk about their lives and there wouldn't be a lot of um, you know there wouldn't be a lot of uh, interruption or almost no interruption on the part of the interviewer interviewers but. They were asked specifically in, at the end of the interviews, do you have any dreams that you remember? And almost mm-hmm. none of them could remember dreams or were willing to talk about them, but I think they claimed they couldn't. But in every single dream, I say this in the book, in every single dream that is recounted, the dreams are about loneliness or loss. Um, people alone or people dealing with loss. Uh, and, um, I see them, you know, they, they're near the end of the, their lives when they're interviewed. They don't, they don't talk about, uh, death, uh, which is the ultimate loss. They're, you know, there's this kind of relentless, don't worry, be happy mentality, uh, that I find it's amazing. Kind of, I found off-putting. And yeah. so I interpreted it as, I interpreted this whole, you know, this is this is a this is the story of a, of a generation that experienced devastating losses and that compensated for those losses with the group. But I'm willing to concede that you know because on some level I'm not particularly sympathetic to them, that maybe I wanted to see them as miserable and unhappy, and maybe they're as happy as they said they were. Uh, but I I really really seriously doubt. There's only one guy. Uh, who conceded that he had been suicidal. Wow. Uh, I think he had actually attempted suicide. And there is no question that he is the warmest, most human, most, um, uh, most attractive man in the interview sample. Um, so, hey, just one last thing I want to say, yes. and to get back to the thing about women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the interviews were, you know, you know, just tell us your life story and then, you know, go from here. And I think, you know, all these people came and with the expectation that, um, that, they, that they were going to talk about the youth movement, particularly and then maybe the free German circle. But the women, in many, many instances, rushed to, to be able to speak about their behavior and experiences at the end of the war uh, or during the last, you know, months of the war when things were absolutely terrible and they engaged some of them on these treks from the east back to to the west. Unbelievable, uh, right. the Red Army, and they, they felt themselves intensely alive. Uh, the immediate post-war period, they felt themselves uh, to be survivors, to be incredibly effective in dealing with this collapsed society, raising little children, uh, when the men came home, propping the men up. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, the women uh, found the, the whole collapse of the patriarchy, if you will, liberating. And the men, by contrast, I think suffered um, much, much more than the women in the end and didn't have the inner strength to be able to flourish under those terrible circumstances. They had been defeated in war. They'd been placed in POW camps where they were treated terribly. And um, when they came back, they, they, they felt emasculated. And uh, as a result, their experience uh, was much more devastating. They weren't able to see anything really positive about it, so they were generally very quiet 
uh, about how they felt uh, at the end of the war. They generally do not talk about the war. Uh, they certainly, almost none of them talk about captivity, except for the one guy I mentioned, who uh, the human guy who said that he still has terrible nightmares about being in an American POW camp, which is nothing hmm. to speak of the Soviet camps that most of them were in. Uh, and right. then the men sort of rushed off uh, after the war to work, 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 and create the so-called economic miracle, and you know threw themselves into work again. The standard reigning interpretation by psychologically minded historians was this drive to achieve prosperity was a defense against guilt feelings for what had been done during the Third Reich. Mm. I don't believe these people really felt guilty. Uh, and instead, I think this rush into work and into achieving prosperity was a defense against, or not a defense, but an attempt to avoiding, avoid the losses that they had felt and, and un, based on a, upon an inability to mourn the losses that they'd experienced. Right. I often feel like, yeah, there's an assumption that there's guilt there somewhere, and I'm not so convinced. I, I'm no, with you. I'm not either. No. Yeah. Well, anyway, we should we should really wrap up. Uh, thank you, Tom, again. I just want to repeat uh, the title. We've been talking to Thomas Kohut about um, a German generation and experiential history of the 20th century. Thanks for doing this, Tom, and thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time. <laughs>